are listening to the Calvary Church Podcast, where each episode features a life-transforming message that was previously recorded in one of our services. And now, let's join a service that's already in progress. We want to uh, continue our series on the pursuit of holiness, and I hope you're sitting next to somebody you like or want to get to know tonight. It's going to be an exciting night. No, I, um, I'm thankful for um, God's willingness to invite us to be holy. We have discovered in our Scripture readings that holiness is a big deal in Scripture. Our passage is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That sounds pretty important. First thing that we talked about is that true holiness comes from God. It comes from God. He is the source of holiness, and any attempt that we would make to be holy outside of Him would be in vain. And we discovered that God is holy and set apart from us because God is sovereign. God is sovereign God is faithful, and God is loving. And I encourage you, if you haven't followed this series or listened to this series, I encourage you to go back and listen to uh, whatever lesson or lessons you've missed. And uh, But we realize that God is holy and set apart from us because God is sovereign, God is faithful, and God is loving. And His holiness is seen in His sovereignty. He is different from us in that he is able and willing to keep his word. He is uh, a sovereign and he is faithful and he is love. The second element that we talked about was that while God is holy, we are not holy. We discussed that we must understand that we are not holy. This is important to help us as we reach for holiness and perfection and maturity and completeness in Christ, that we realize that we in and of ourselves are not holy. We read Isaiah chapter 64 that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And we considered the experience of Moses with the burning bush as a template to understand God's holiness versus our holiness. A holy God appears to a unholy man and tells him not to draw near, that you are unholy. We understand that difference. But what we realize in the story of Moses is that God invites us to be holy. And that is where things can get uneasy for us, is to believe and expect that we could actually be holy. But God invites Moses to be holy. He is invited to not just look at the burning bush, but he had an invitation to be holy. God called to him and invited him, and he told him that he was able to experience a holy God, and he was invited to be holy. What an incredible invitation to be under the rule of God's sovereignty, to be under the rule of his faithfulness and the measure of his unending love. And so 
we talked about that invitation, and then we concluded with the idea that we are made holy only through humility. And we discovered the first step in partaking of God's holiness is that we are made holy through humility. And we find that Moses is invited to interact with the holy God, but he had to remove his sandals, that he had to remove what separated him from the ground that had been made holy. And so there is a power to humility. And again, I would say tonight that if we are to reach for holiness, if we are to pursue holiness, it begins with humility. It begins with humility. And tonight I want to focus on what I believe happens when we humble ourselves to a holy God. And what does humility really look like? When we pursue holiness, I want to emphasize that when we pursue holiness, we humble and surrender our carnal identity to take on the identity of a holy God. When we pursue holiness, we are letting go of our unholy identity and embracing the identity of a holy God. Holiness is not just about seeing God as holy, but it is the idea that somehow God says that we can be holy as he is holy. And so we have to be willing to submit and humble ourselves to who he is, which is holy. So therefore, we are taking on this holy identity. It's uncomfortable to think, to say, I am holy. Tell the person next to you, say, I'm holy. If you are. It's a a little bit uncomfortable. But that is the identity. That is the identity that you're embracing when you surrender your heart to God. You're not just surrendering to this idea of salvation where God just saves you from your sins and then God walks away and you just do whatever, when God saves you, you're embracing this idea that you could actually be a holy person through Christ. And so, I submit that being holy is not just about having a good day or following a list of rules. Holy is about submitting your entire identity to a holy God, being willing to be truly transformed by and for this holy God. God's desire is to impart his identity to us. The source of our identity then comes not from DNA, not just from culture or our own desires, but 
rather from a holy God. A holy God becomes the source of our identity. We're honest, identity is pretty important in our life. You may have had your identity stolen once in your life, but it's pretty important. One of the fundamental tasks of an adolescence, according to psychologists, and I agree with them in this, one of the fundamental tasks of an adolescence is figuring out who they are. It's the first question that an adolescent begins after puberty is, who am I? You watch preteens and junior high students, and you parents and grandparents of them, you, you can't make sense of it because they don't know who they are. They're trying to figure it out. Am I a child? Am I a teen? Am I an adult? It's all about identity. And this happens in the junior high years, and I think we all agree no one ever wants to relive those years. That's why Bishop Pasley II said adolescence is Greek for Armageddon. Wrestling out identity can be a difficult task, but one we realize is fundamental to who we are and who we become as a person. Identity is pretty important in our culture. Our sense of who we are is a highly prized perspective. Our culture celebrates identity. It is found in our political expression. We identify ourselves many times based on a political ideology. It's found in our ethnic expression. We identify with certain elements of culture based on the ethnicity. It's found on our speech and language. It's found in sexual expression. It's found in clothing, in music, in food. Even identity can be found in where you go to school. Has anybody ever seen somebody proud of the school they went to? I'm a wildcat, Canton South Wildcats. Kind of identify, you, you create an identity and the whole college scandal deal where parents were paying money for kids to get into school. What was that about? It was about identity and opportunity. Where what we major or study in can help form our identity, our careers, the company we work for gives us a sense of identity. You ask most people who you are, so who are you? You'll probably get an answer that relates to one of those ideas because our identity is found in a lot of different things and it matters to culture and if we're honest, it matters to us. Let me be honest tonight about my identity. And this is not a, in any way trying to be humorous, but I have to pray to God often that my identity not rest in the fact that I am a pastor. Who I am is not 
because I'm a pastor. And the reality is, I don't know who said this, but I agree that really you can say I'm a senior pastor, but really I'm the interim pastor because I'm going to spend a lot longer in eternity than I am fulfilling the role of pastor. And identity is one of those things that we can latch on to things that make us feel comfortable, that make us feel secure about ourselves. But God calls us to take on His identity. And everywhere we look, identity is value. And let me state boldly tonight, culture wasn't the first one to care about your identity. God cared about your identity from the beginning of time. But because of sin, our identities have been distorted and confused from their original intention and the power that only the image of God can create. So God's whole invitation for you and I to be holy is an invitation that seeks to recalibrate our identity to a place that finds its salvation or foundation in a God who is the creator and a God who knows what's best for us. And so we have to, if we're going to embrace the holiness of God, we have to humble ourselves to the identity of God. That God ultimately gets the say in who I am. That's what the pursuit of holiness is about. That God gets the say in who I am. And Paul tells the church in Corinthians that image matters. In 1 Corinthians 15, 49, he said, As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we, also, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. The word image means likeness. We all bear the likeness of the man of dust. We all have that in us. We all are made of dust. We naturally bear that image. We look, think, and act like humanity. But God's Word tells us that this is not the only image that we should reflect. The word image comes from the Greek word icon. E-I-K-O-N, which is where we get our word icon. An icon in software represents the power of the software. The icon is not, excuse me, is not the software. It is the image or the expression of how you get to the software. You click on the icon to be taken to the real power behind the icon. Ever clicked on an icon that didn't go anywhere? That's what it's like when people click on human icons. When identity is wrapped up in humanity. When our identity is wrapped up in a human condition. It doesn't have much eternal value. It doesn't have much eternal place. However, when we take on the identity of the heavenly man, we have the ability to help people find the true power of God. 
because it's not our image they're clicking on. It's not our image they're interacting with. They're interacting with the power of God that's found in the image that he wants us to bear. And so when we are holy and we are willing to accept that God is inviting us to be holy, we can bear the image of a holy God. We have the ability to help people find the power of God and we can help them see their lives transformed by the power of God. When I bear the identity of a holy God, I become the icon of hope, healing, and salvation for a world that is desperate. So Paul would write to the Philippians, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He's saying I'm relinquishing my identity. Paul had some significant things he could identify with. He, he could have been proud of the fact that, that he was part of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and he had a lot of knowledge and he had a lot of connections. But he said, I'm laying that all down. I'm laying all that identity down so that the power of Christ can rest in me. He said, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may, what? Gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's reaching, he's pursuing a holiness. That holiness didn't come from him or his own identity. It came from the surrender of his identity to the power of Jesus Christ and the work on the cross. Amen. So if we choose to live our own identity rather than the identity of God, what does that identity produce? What is your icon saying to people? Where does it take them? Paul asked the same question in Romans chapter 6, verse 21. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is your icon producing? What is your life producing? It's meant to produce holiness. It's meant to be uh, uh, something that comes out of your surrender to an almighty God. We become slaves to God. We change, we allow him to change our identity because God cares about our identity. So what does God's identity look like? And I'm going to 
hasten through this section, but I want to offer four areas where God desires to form our identity and invites us to be partakers of his holiness. So if we realize that our identity is in God, it's important for us to understand what is it that God wants us to bear. The first place that God gives us identity is found in the creation of humanity. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God creates humanity to reflect the image of God. God created humanity to reflect his image. This creation demonstrated God's absolute sovereignty in creation. No one got to decide the order of creation or what it was. It was his sovereign will that decided what creation should be. So God creates humanity, but he creates humanity with two very clear distinctions. God creates a male and God creates a female. So let's talk about the differences. Just kidding, we're not going to talk about that. So here we find one of the first places God emphasizes identity. There is an identity that I'm putting on creation, and it's male and female. It's a gender distinction. And we should understand that gender distinction reflects the sovereignty of God. Gender distinction reflects the sovereignty of God, and gender distinction is meant to be clear. This is male, and this is female. Gender can be important for different reasons in Scripture, but one reason I quickly offer is that gender distinction reflects God's ability to create. It was necessary and is necessary for both the involvement of the male and the female in order to mirror the creative power of God. Be fruitful and multiply. That was the directive, but it required the distinction of genders. So the distinction of genders would be one of the first places where God's holiness and God's identity would be reflected in humanity. Now, contrary to maybe what people may think, I read the passage to say that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, meaning the image of God is complete in male and female. Although I'd like to say that I am the complete image of God as a man, I realize that the woman is also a part of the image of God that God once reflected. And so... It would be God's sovereign display that the genders would be distinct. However, after the sin of humanity, gender became an identity that was subject to humanity's own distinctions. 
It's not something new to our culture. This is gender fluidity and that whole idea is not new to our culture. It was that idea of understanding the distinction of genders that God would pull out his own special people and give them a law that let them know that the distinction between genders was important. God would remind his people both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that gender mattered. God would tell his people in the Old Testament, a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor a man put on a woman's garment for all who do are an abomination to the Lord your God. He's telling this to a people. Why would he tell it to his people? Because there would have been a drifting away from the idea of a gender distinction. And to reflect his sovereignty and to reflect his glory, he says that the gender should remain distinct. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but if you go through 1 Timothy, Paul writes about men and women in like manner also that women adorn, men lifting up holy hands. There's a distinction between men and women. In 1 Corinthians, doesn't uh, does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. In Ephesians chapter 5, 30, it talks about the, the distinction between uh, a, a man and woman as it relates to marriage, that they become one flesh. And this is a great mystery, says, I speak concerning Christ and the church, that this distinction brings glory to God. Today, sin continues to bring disorder and disruption to gender, but God wants to provide a clear identity to us that allows us to live out our life for an eternal purpose. So God's holiness is reflected in our gender distinction. The second place God wants to form our identity is found immediately after humanity sins. Man would experience for the first time the shame of sin. They would understand that they were naked. And in response to this, humanity tried to cover up their shame. But God would say that humanity's version of covering was lacking, and so God would provide a covering to deal with that shame. It would be the principle of covering that would be found in the Old Testament law for the children of Israel. The priest would wear a special covering, a robe that represented uh, God's redemptive plan. And God would call on his special people to cover themselves in a way that was modest. It would be a, a godlike attribute of humanity to cover themselves in modest apparel. It would f- reflect God's protection and covering in our life. On the contrary, Babylon's downfall is compared by God to a woman's shame in having her nakedness exposed when she bears her leg and uncovers her thigh. It should also be noted that the lack of covering... The lack of clothes is associated in Scripture with demonic activity. The demoniac in Scripture rips off his clothes. The demon-possessed man tore the clothes off the seven Jews who tried to cast the demons out of him. And we realize the real measure of what Christ did on the cross in that Christ took on our shame. 
How do we know that Christ took on our shame? He was stripped naked. He took on our shame. He took on every sin and everything that was contrary to the law of God. But we realize the principle of covering reflects the image of God. It reflects what Christ would do on the cross in that his blood would cover us so that in Revelation chapter 7, we could wear what white robes? We would be covered. And so modesty in covering is a principle that is found in Scripture and demonstrates the holiness of God in our life. Again, I quote Bishop II, sitting at Disney. I remember he remarked, modesty is the gift we give to others. How right he was. We realize that when we allow God's identity to be demonstrated in our covering and our modesty, we reflect the faithfulness of God. Sin created the need for covering. And it was God's faithfulness, God's keeping of his redemptive promise that provides us salvation in spite of our sinful flesh. So God's holiness sees and desires us to be partakers of this principle of covering. Romans chapter 13 says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. It's a covering. And our identity in Christ is seen in our modesty, our willingness to humble ourselves to a holy God. Third place, God forms our identity. It's found in the governance of our desires. God gave a law to Adam and Eve in hopes that the consequences and the rewards would be enough to encourage them to obey God and to love God. But their ungoverned desires were the portal that led to sin. Good for food, pleasant to the eye, desired to make one wise. God desired to put a governance on desire. God's holiness puts a governance on our desires. But Eve ignored the governance, ignored the law, ignored it, and allowed her desires to go unchecked and therefore led to sin. Desires today can have such a great impact on our identity. Often we are labeled by our desires. Culture encourages us to identify with certain desires. As humans, we are prone to carnal nature and carnal desires. This is not hidden in Scripture. This does not make you the worst person on the planet because you have carnal desires. Does not mean that you are without hope because you desire things that are contrary to Scripture. But we realize that sin causes us to reach for desires that are contrary to the law of God. 
However, carnal desires are not meant to be our identity. Let me say that again. Our carnal desires are not meant to be our identity. Yes, you may face desires. You may face temptations. You may wrestle with attractions. But no, you don't have to accept these desires as your identity. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Those are desires. Those are desires that are unchecked. Those are desires that are ungoverned. But that's not the identity that Christ wants us to wear. He says, and such were some of you. you. You used to be labeled with that identity, but you're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Your desires have been checked. Your desires have been governed. God's identity for his people would always include the idea that desires would be governed. God provides the Ten Commandments and the law as a way to provide governance for the desires after sin. He pulls out his own special people and he says, I'm going to give you some things that protect you against your own desires. And so he provides those Ten Commandments. He provides the law. And the governance of our desires is God's expression of his holiness through love to humanity. God governs our desires. God puts caps on our desires. Why? Because he loves us. He demonstrates his love towards us. The opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is selfishness. Ungoverned desires are the picture of selfishness. Do not love the world, John said, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because love and selfishness cannot coexist. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And selfishness is at the core of ungoverned desires. And so we find the holiness and identity God wants for us is going to be realized through our desires that we are willing to allow God's holiness to govern. Are you going to allow God to govern your desires? Oh, you might have desires, you might have things that you're attracted to or desire, but are you going to allow God's love, God's law, God's word to govern those desires? Finally, 
we come to the last element of our identity that God desires to form in us, and that is in our conduct. We hold our desires in check. Most likely, we're going to hold our conduct in check. We hold our desires in check. Most likely, we're going to hold our conduct in check. How do we show the world the love of Christ? It's in our governed desires. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober says, as obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. My conduct becomes right because I understand that God is holy and he's inviting me to be holy and he's giving me an identity that says I can be holy. So God's holiness in our life is to be not just something that's out there in the atmosphere But God's holiness in our life is to be lived out. It's to be lived out. Live in a way. If you call yourself a Christian, strive to live in a way that honors God's holiness. Honor his sovereignty. Honor his faithfulness. Honor his love. This is the little phrase that I don't know if it's new to me or if the Lord spoke it to me or not. But here's what I felt to tell you tonight. Let his word win in your life. Let his word win in your life. Surrender to his identity. Engender the distinction of male and female, in modesty, in covering, in desires, and in conduct. Let his word win in your life. Why would we do that? Why not just pursue our own thoughts and our own identities? Because... God knows us best, and he loves us the most. 
God knows you best, and he loves you the most. And he is inviting you and I to be holy. Our carnal nature is going to fight against the holiness of God. Our carnal nature at times is going to fight against the need to be so gender distinct or so modest or, or, or push back our desires. Why do we have to do that? Why do we have to hold ourselves back? But I'm telling you, if we'll let the word of God win, the love of God will find its way not only in our life, but in the lives of so many people around us. And what we realize is love is not selfish and love is not self-serving. Love impacts the people around us. And so why would I dare to try to live holy? It's so that people can find the love of God. So I want to read just two passages as we consider this idea of letting his word win. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into what? Captivity. Why? To the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. It's a neat way to phrase that, that we punish disobedience. When you obey the word of God, you punish disobedience. But we realize we have to first allow God to be holy in our life. Because everything is going to push God to some lower tier in our life. And we bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So God invites us to be holy. God invites you and I to be holy. He wants to change our identity. I, I think that it's okay. You don't have to go around and say it. But it's okay for you to wear the identity of holy. Because it might change the way you live your life if you woke up in the morning and were like, well, I'm holy. I'm holy as God's holy. I'm holy as I allow God to be holy in my life. We should wear the identity of holiness. And I'm not just talking, of course, about clothing. I'm talking about our paradigm, our mindset should be holy. That we're striving for holiness. We're pursuing holiness. So Peter wrote to the church, my last Reference today, tonight, 1 Peter chapter 2, because Peter kind of outlines it for us who we're supposed to be. But you are a chosen generation. We love that. 
God picked me. Shout about it. But he calls us a royal priesthood. I'm a king's kid. I'm a part of the priesthood. I'm a part of worship. But he calls us a holy nation. A holy people. His own special people. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Hallelujah. Our holiness, there's nothing to brag about as it pertains to our holiness. But when we live a life that strives to be holy, we proclaim his praises. Who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. How wonderful is that? Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Behold, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lust which war against the soul. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. I think Holiness is a big deal. How you live your life, how you conduct your life really matters to God. So we conclude tonight with this question, and that's why I hoped you were sitting by somebody you felt comfortable with. What aspect of God's identity in your life has been most important or challenging to you? What aspect of God's identity in your life has been most important or most challenging to you? We listed four specifically elements of identity, gender, modesty, desires, and conduct. Gender, modesty, desires, and conduct. All right, let's have revival at time. You can discuss amongst yourselves. All right, why don't you stand tonight? The more I study this idea of holiness and just refreshing my mind on all of it, the more I feel the love of God in my life. 
It's not a, to me, the subject is not a condemning subject. It's not a restrictive subject. It's a liberating subject. Because if we'll live the way God designed us to live, we'll live much better lives. Much better lives. So I want to pray for you tonight. God, I thank you for your call to us to live a holy life. God, you're inviting us to this opportunity to surrender our lives to you very specifically, very practically, but very powerfully. Lord, I pray that you would allow the Calvary Church to be a church who embraces holiness, but embraces it from the position of you are holy, and that's where our holiness comes from. Lord, I pray that if there are those who maybe are wrestling with different aspects of holiness or identity, God, I pray you just give them the grace, give them the strength, the courage to allow the word of God to win in their life. God, we're all at different places in our maturity and our completeness in you, our perfectness in you. And Lord, I'm praying that you would just allow Calvary to be a place of grace, to be a place of love. God, to allow people to find you, allow them to grow organically. God, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your power and your purpose in our life. Thank you for the opportunity to gather tonight. Bring us back on Sunday, God, to see your will accomplished among your people. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.